Adeline was unsurprisingly a wealth of knowledge today. Uh, if you are a hyper growth brand, this one's a must listen. We learned about her approach to recruiting and leadership, what is unique about hyper growth, and then also how she grew up as fairly shy and introverted um, and now is in the role of CMO. Remember, if you like the show, be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Welcome to Earned, everybody. Uh, today, we're going to learn from one of the top CMOs in the world when it comes to social media and hyper-growth brands, Adeline Leong. Welcome to the show, Adeline. Thanks, Connor. So, so happy to be here. So Adeline, as I went through your you know, CV via LinkedIn, um, it made me incredibly depressed because you are just so much more accomplished than I am at uh, relatively the same age. So congrats on that front. <laughs> Thank you. And, and definitely not true given the success of Tribe. Hey, 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 we'll see. We'll see. So for those that don't know, you did your undergrad at MIT, MBA at Wharton, spent three years at L'Oreal, which is like the finishing school within the beauty world, then six years at Sephora where you were the eventually the VP of Integrated Marketing, then CMO at Tatcha for three years, just prior to acquisition for a half a billion dollars by Unilever. And then now you've been the CMO at Kosas for a little over two years, I think, right? Is that correct? Uh, I think a year and a half. Okay, year and a half. But you know, since in 2020, you guys tripled retail revenue. In the last year, you've doubled revenue despite the pandemic, when you know most most uh, uh, makeup brands were you know double digit decline. So it's uh, it's super impressive. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I've had so the honor to, to be at really incredible companies. Yeah, you've you've done some good picking there. Um, so I have to imagine that given, you know, Kosas's category, right, which is a, you know, a very hot category, as well as your growth rate that the strategic acquirers have come calling. Is there is there an end goal for Kosas and for you or is it just keep building and then we'll see see where it takes us? Yeah, you know, honestly, we have dreams at Kosas that are so much bigger than than acquisition that we think about. Um we like to say, like our Sheena, our founder, always has a she has a real vision to push the beauty industry forward, and that's really what carries us. We we say our higher purpose is to really, um, sorry, we our higher purpose is really to support the consumer in recognizing that beauty is who you are to yourself and no one else. And so we set that as our mission, and we think about building the brand and whatever comes out of that. That's what makes us happy at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. We've kind of taken the same approach here, which is like, let's just build something that is incredibly valuable to people. And then I think the rest kind of takes care of itself. Um, and separately, I think there is an opportunity given the mission and the category you're in to potentially build something that's much bigger than an acquisition, like you said, right? To build kind of a platform theoretically for other brands that you could help to accelerate. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. I think the world has so many beauty brands and there's so many products every single day um, that really what makes a difference and, and creates a lasting brand is one that has a connection to the consumer in a, in a whole other way. Um, and that, that's what motivates me. And, you know, when you ask what's the, the end goal for you, as long as I'm, I'm building brands with really great products, um, I'm, I'm good. So if we were to look at your kind of track record, it seems like you know, you've kind of, I mean, if you were to design coming out of your MBA program, the kind of perfect lineup for a beauty CMO, it seems like you've really hit it, right? You're at a retailer, the best, one of the best retailers in the world. You're at L'Oreal, you're at a rocket ship brand that did really well. You know, when you started, when you kind of entered college or entered university, was beauty always on your mind? Or is this something that you just, you started at L'Oreal and you're like, hey, I really dig this and I just want to keep it going. How did that, how did that work out? No, I had such an unusual path to beauty, to be honest. Um, I was such an awkward teenager. <laughs> I don't think that <laughs> anyone in high school or even college would have said like, oh, you know, Adeline's the person I go to for beauty or fashion expertise. Um, I was I was not even really into makeup. Um, but what happened was I, I was in finance before business school um, and I kind of went to business school a little bit lost trying to find what I wanted to do, find a passion. And 
I had gotten really great advice from someone really early on that was, if you're not sure, just attend as many information sessions, talk to as many people as you can. That's really what business school is amazing for and figure out what what conversations get you excited. Um, and I found myself sitting in a L'Oreal company presentation, um, fascinated by what the job looked like, um, both from a consumer standpoint, the science behind the actual development of products and R&D, um, all the way through just the business aspects of it. Um, and I I don't think I knew until that moment that you could even do beauty marketing um, and that that was a career path. And so um, in that moment, I started to think, how do you get a job as a beauty marketer? Because you, you do have to start all over. Um, and so I, I just started sort of pounding the pavement on interviews, talking to people. Um, I got lucky in getting an internship at Victoria's Secret Beauty, which was my first um, foray into beauty. And then out of there, landed in the L'Oreal um, Management Development Program and, and really fell in love there. Um, but the funny thing is L'Oreal actually puts you on the sales floor when you first start. It's part of their training program. You can't go into the corporate office until you've done a field rotation, which I think is so smart because they don't want you to be clouded by anything and they want you to feel what a salesperson feels behind the counter back then. Um, yeah. I'm going to age myself there. Um, and so I found myself, you know, literally behind a Macy's counter um, applying makeup, um, which is scary for the customers that I, that I touched then. <laughs> um, but now, you know, now I'm obsessed. You know, I've sort of never looked back. I, I love the category so much. That's really cool. It seems like whatever they've got going on, they are certainly seen as the institution where you go to kind of cut your teeth, right? Like um, it's a, a uh, proving ground for a lot of other roles. Um, was there anything else other than the, uh, than the beauty room floor that they did that you thought was unique? You know, I think that I know L'Oreal has evolved a lot over the years, um, but I think that L'Oreal really considers marketers as end to end general managers of their of their businesses. Um, and so from a very early start, you know, even if you're an assistant manager right out of undergrad, you're thrown in and maybe it's just on a small category. Maybe you just own concealer versus a total face category. But you're expected to know everything from your comp your competition, what are the top 10 products or the top 10 shades, all the way through how would you do media planning, how would you execute this in store, on the counter, on the gondola, um, and how are the field going to be trained and what do those materials look like? And so they're, they sort of really have you own end to end. Um, and it's not siloed um, in your early years. I, I know that's changed mm -hmm. over time, but I would say, like, I think that's why so many people use it as a place to start. Um, and the people are really great. There's still some of my best friends have come out of my time there. Yeah, no, it's it kind of self perpetuates, right? Like if you continue to recruit really talented people, it just builds on top of itself. So for you, you know, the path you've led to, right? So I think within most, within a lot of beauty companies, right? CMO is kind of the pinnacle position it's, or one of the most important positions. Um, and now that you've got, you know, I'll call it two really successful kind of uh, CMO roles under your belt, is the next step CEO role or does CMO kind of, is that your calling? What, what are you thinking? You know, I've always been really obsessed with finding the right brand and the right founder. Um, mm -hmm. versus the right title. Um, because I think that that is really the framework that you end up working in more than anything. I really enjoy understanding all aspects of the business, but I think similar to how L'Oreal sets up marketing, what I really look for in a company is I ask the founder, usually, if, if, the, if a CEO hasn't started, how do you view marketing? Like, what do you mm. see as the function? And sometimes you get answers where I really need someone to help me with creative and content. Um, yeah. Other times they say, oh, I really need an awareness strategy. Like, I, I just I want to do really fun activations, PR, et cetera. And then there's other people who look at it more through that brand management lens where you may not be CEO, but you're considered a business driver and an owner. 
And mm-hmm. so for me, if the CMO role has a hand in driving the business, the P&L, um, a lot of the decisions that go into distribution and those other things, um, I don't need to chase the title. Um, yeah. And I'm not you know, obsessed with ops, finance, HR, the other things that come with the CEO specific role. Um, so I'd say never, never say never, but I would also be equally happy to continue being a, a CMO and, and working at working with great founders. Yeah. So it's more about the founders and the product and the company than it is necessarily about the title, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I too am not particularly fascinated with uh, finance ops. HR, those functions either. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that out loud, but... Uh... <laughs> I know, I know, I just made that public. <laughs> nothing, nothing my colleagues probably don't already know. And, and they're so critical. Um, I'd say they're not the things that bring me the most joy, you know? And so as you think about what, what makes you happy and what gets you up every day, um, for me, that that's putting out great products and, and building brands. Well, and I think in a lot of ways if you're really good at it and you enjoy it, that's what you should focus on, right? Like those should be the qualifying criteria. I think that I remember early on, I had decided like, oh, I need to get really good at these things I'm not good at. And it was just, it felt like I was swimming up river. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like there are things that I'm really good at and like that I should focus on. Um, Like I remember taking, I was taking speech classes and one of my, team member was like, why are you taking a speech class? Like you're a really good public speaker. I'm like, well, yeah, but I want to get even better. Right. So like, I want to hone that because I have an opportunity to be really good at it. Um, so yeah. So it seems like, you know, when I've, so I've interviewed quite a few CMOs, know a lot of them, right. Or just senior level marketers, whatever. And it seems like there's kind of two paths, right? So I'll call it the, uh, the Corey at Elf path, right? Which is very public. And this, I love Corey. So this is, she's just like the best example of it, right? Very out there, very kind of face of the company in some ways, at least from an industry perspective, not from a consumer perspective as much, but more from an industry perspective. And I think with you, you've taken kind of a much kind of more in the background role generally, right? Not, not all the time, but you're in the press, but generally it seems like you're more focused on internal team operations, those kinds of things. Um, is that an intentional approach? Is there anything that's changing there over time? Um, would love to hear what your, your philosophies are there. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's something that I didn't start to think a lot about until I'd say CMOs started to become personalities, even on social media. Right. Um, and you know what I'd say is I'm, I'm more of an introvert. Like that's just where my comfort zone is. And so I'm not someone who proactively puts myself in the spotlight. You know, I'm not someone who who would have reached out and said, hey, can I be on this podcast? Or, you know, hey, can I be on this panel? And so as those speaker opportunities come up, like my tendency is to ask my team, like who wants to do this? Who, you know, who would enjoy um, taking this on and as a learning opportunity? And so, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a conscientious choice, um, but it, it probably isn't super authentic to me to to be, you know, out there promoting promoting myself as a brand, I guess I would say, and I have more than enough work to do um, supporting the founder, <laughs> which is really which is really what I see as as the that's my role, um, and so I, I see yep. that as like the thing I should be focused on. Um, and in my spare time, I'm, I'm probably being being a mom, <laughs> um, so you know I either have to I gotta do my job as as the CMO, and then um, you know I think it's all about priorities, and um, I haven't haven't really had the chance to do that, um, but I'm happy to operate in the background too. For sure. Well, I think that yeah, you know, everybody has superpowers, right? Everybody has things that they're incredibly good at, and then the goal is to like you know backfill the areas that you're not as good at, right? With other people that are really talented. And so I think in a lot of ways, propping up the founder is certainly, a, I think, a really good way to go. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the last, call it, we'll call it five years, right? Which is, you know, you've been part of brands that are in um, pretty aggressive kind of hyper growth phases of their, their existence. So when you are at a brand that's growing, call it 50 to 100% year over year, what's different about that versus your days? You know, I would assume that Sephora wasn't growing at that rate and L'Oreal wasn't growing at that rate while you were there. Um, What have you noticed in terms of challenges, differences, approaches that have made you successful in those environments? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I'd say when you're at a a big place, like a a long home at a L'Oreal, 
the the game is so different because it's all about market share and keeping your market share and keeping your leadership role um and the the increments that you can do that in are smaller because you're already mm-hmm. so big if you're a billion dollar brand in the US or a 3 billion dollar brand you know you you your your focus is a little different because now you you really have to make sure that you're expanding a consumer base that's already already so big yeah, whereas yeah. when you're a small brand um it's so much harder to prioritize because everything is an opportunity. Yep. Um, and so I think the most important thing in your early phases is really understanding what are the, what are the things that are going to have the biggest impact right now while having a vision to what you want the brand to look like in the next three years. And so I think you're constantly trying to think short-term, long-term, short-term, long-term, um, because otherwise you could just drown in every opportunity. Because small brands also have everyone coming your way, right? Like, do you want to do mm-hmm. this partnership? Do you want to do this giveaway? Do you want to launch this retailer? And I think it's so important to really know what you stand for, where you want to go, and what your roadmap is to get there. And then, of course, be flexible that if TikTok explodes, you can you can go <laughs> jump on TikTok um, and that you're not you're not only thinking about the future, but that you're you're ready to do the, the, the short term. Um, and so I think that and then that foundational piece, I think that pausing to say, do you know what your brand DNA is? Do you know what your values are? Do you know what your product strategy is? Do you know what your pricing strategy is? I think a lot of small brands are running so fast that they're just they're sort of on a hamster wheel. Um, and I think the, the brands that are, are really smart sort of pause, get that executive team in, have those conversations um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe miss a beat for a few months, um, but can, can really propel you, I think, for the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I really, if I were to condense that into a single word, I think it'd say be focused, right? Like the yeah. ability to... Um, you know, take in all of these disparate opportunities and pick the ones that are the most important and the most aligned with what your kind of mission, vision, product, et cetera is. Um, we certainly have gone through phases of that as well. I think when we first started, we were just, you know, just grabbing everything that was coming your way, right? Because you go from this, you transition from this, nobody's paying attention to us at all, right? I don't think you haven't been at that phase, which is like the like, nobody gives a shit about you phase, which is like, you start, nobody gives a shit. Like, Anything you do, there are no opportunities, no, nothing coming your way. And then you start growing very, very quickly. And it's like, oh my God, I've never had this before. Like I want everything. And, um, it's hard to kind of take all that in and turn things down. Right. Um, and so, uh, but it's, I mean, it was super, super critical part of our story. Um, so what, what are the types of things that you've had to turn down? Like, what are the things that you've looked at either at Tatcha or at Kosas that you were like, Hey, I know this looks like a really big opportunity, but we're we're not gonna we're not gonna pursue it right now. You know, I think that it happens in in every part of the business. I'd say product is one. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's an area where you could see a trend. You might have a formula that could easily jump on it, but maybe it's gonna be too close to a product you already have in your portfolio. Um, maybe you just don't have the resources to support that much. Maybe there's no room on your unit in store. Um, and you just have to say, you know, maybe Sephora wants us to do it, but we know we have something better coming in six months and we're going to, we're going to make sure yep. we do it right. And we promise it's still going to be right. And so I, I think that's one thing. I think distribution is a piece. Um, there's certainly, you know, we get retailer calls every single week, um, from small to big. Um, and we are in an exclusivity agreement with, with Sephora, but we, um, you know, before that there was certainly, you could say, oh, I'm going to do these 50 retailers instead of go exclusive with Sephora. Um, because it seems like it's more, but that at the end of the day, that focus on, on Sephora is so powerful. Um, if that's your target audience, which, which it is for us. Um, and Tatcha was the same thing. You know, we, we were very, very focused on our distribution, um, in our international strategy in the early days. Um, and our product pipeline was really tight. Um, and so I think, I think those are the, the big areas. Um, and then I'd say in marketing, you know, there's, um, there's a temptation to just do every single uh, partnership that comes up in um, our sponsorship or an event. Um, and some of them are so great. <laughs> um, but I always, you know, our team is so small. 
And so it's really a matter of, do you think that's going to drive exactly what we think the goals are right now? Or do we pass, maintain the relationship and do it later? So I think we're making those decisions every single day. They're, they're not easy though. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, the part of the equation that I don't have as much visibility into is the retail side of things, which is like, you know, obviously having Sephora on your side is a really big deal, right? But at the same time, you know, there are other players out there uh, that, you know, like Ulta probably wouldn't be a terrible distribution partner for you guys, right? Um, so, and I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you comment <laughs> on that. But, uh, you know, that's a big decision to make that, right? To become exclusive with anybody. Um, so, Yeah. So let's talk, or sorry, did you want to say something? Oh, no, no, go ahead. Okay. So let's talk a little bit, you know, this is kind of in the same the same focus arena, which is one of the more interesting things about you guys, and well, as frankly, is about Tatcha at their time, was that you're part of kind of a movement as much as you are a brand as well, right? So this kind of clean movement, um, and specifically, I think, really kind of head-to-head in a lot of ways with Ilya, right? And so, you know... And I think you have this rising tides phenomenon, which is you guys getting bigger propels them and them getting bigger propels you because it raises the overall awareness of the category and of the mission. Um, How do you think about that kind of mix of category evangelism versus, say, product and brand evangelism, right? Like, do you think about that as two separate things? Do you kind of push on it at the same time? I'd love to hear your, your perspective there. Yeah, um, you know, I'd say that what's interesting about Kosis is we've definitely been part of that clean makeup rising tide, as you said, and and certainly, you know, Ilya and us together have, have helped to propel that category. We, you know, when Sheena founded the brand, she actually didn't set out to create a clean beauty brand. Um, She landed there through a series of decisions she made about the way she wanted products to feel, the ingredients that she personally didn't like, and ended up creating something that was next level clean and and cleaner than, than most of the brands on the market. And so it's never been part of her mission to create the clean category, so to speak. And we are definitely not into sort of the fear mongering, the no-no lists. We really believe clean is a, it's a lifestyle choice, the same way that organic food is a lifestyle choice. So I would say we actually purposefully don't spend a ton of time saying, you know, we're evangelists for the clean makeup category. Clean mm-hmm. is one of the reasons to believe in our brand, uh, but it's not it's not the only reason for sure. And so then, you know, the brand versus product thing, I think, is the is the biggest struggle for for any brand, especially to your point when it comes to focus. You know, and I think the reality is you you have to have both. Um, Sephora cares about hero product marketing. And and you guys talk about this, too, in a tribe when, you know, an influencer, when you see influencer EMV going through the roof for a brand, it's often because of a hero product that they're getting a lot of credit for. And yep. so that is a truth that um, we don't, we absolutely don't lose sight of. And we're very clear on our hero product strategy um, and we're obsessed with it. But I think for that brand that lasts a lifetime, hero products can come and go. Um, hopefully they don't, but they can. And so it has to be complemented by the emotional connection, the community connection, like what's going to actually keep someone coming back um, and staying with you and, and not moving on to the next, the next hero product. Um, so it is a balance. Um, but I'd say clean actually is more of a little piece of the brand and the product piece than it is the, an evangelism piece for us. Let's hit on that hero product concept for a little bit. You've been in the press quite a bit about sampling recently. Um, and I was having a discussion with another brand recently where they're like, oh yeah, you know, we're giving away this free sample on our e-com because we have a bunch left over. It's like, well, don't do that. Like, don't, don't, don't give people the product that sucks. Like, that's not the one that you want to get into their hands. Like, get the Euro product in their hands. Like, that's what you want there. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of what that looks like for you. Because I think it's really interesting, particularly when you look at programs like a BoxyCharm or others where, you know, it may not be super easy to understand the return on that investment directly. Um, so tell me one about what your thoughts are broadly about sampling. And I'd love for you to touch on both kind of retail sampling, like a Sephora, as well as, you know, the box programs. 
Um, and then separately after that, would love to hear a little bit about the tryouts program you guys are doing and how that's going. Cause I think you guys announced that a few months ago and now you've gotten to see it a little bit and see, I'd love to know whether that's working or not and maybe describe it yeah. so people know what it is. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in sampling. I, I think mm -hmm. some of it is because, um, my, my first role at Sephora was, you know, director of marketing and, and really running the sourcing of beauty insider sampling, which, which stayed with me in my, in my teams for, for over six years. So, you know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, but I also <laughs> saw, I saw the numbers and I, I saw yeah. the internal numbers that brands don't even see, which are phenomenal. Um, and, um, the return on investment is there. The, the key though, is to your point on the don't give away the, the product that that isn't working is it, it has to be the right product in the in the right hands. You know, if, if you're gonna, um, I saw so many brands. We used to tell brands at Sephora this all the time, where you would see their sampling strategy and they would say, "I have this hundred thousand samples I'd like to do on X product because it's minus thirty percent." Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would always sort of say, we hate to tell you this, but 100,000 samples is not going to is not going to make it plus 30 percent. Like maybe it'll make it minus 20, but it's not it's not going to change the game. And so, you know, I think about really from a boxy charm perspective, I think of that differently as Sephora. I'd say boxy charm is this incredible brand awareness driver. Um, and so it's thinking about like, who's that audience? Like, what's the right hero product to put in their hands um, where you, you know, you're okay with the quantities that they take. Um, and you think that the impact is going to be there when the content gets created, because that's what BoxyCharm's doing. For Sephora, the sampling strategy is, is really part of your selling expenses. And so mm -hmm. um, you're looking at what am I trying to sell and what do I need to do to support it to get there? And so um, I really think that if you have the right products in their hands, it, it, the money is well spent. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that. You know, Cosa's tryouts is a little bit different. Um, it's still in this vein of sampling works. Yeah. Um, but for us, what we've been just trying to think about is makeup is so hard to buy online. It's just yep. so hard. Um, and virtual try on, you know, I was at Sephora when we launched the amazing virtual, virtual artist tool, but the reality just is like, you can get a sense, but it's not the same, you know, putting an AR filter on yourself is not the same as, as trying yep. a product on in real life. And yeah. the other frustration is when you get a sample from Sephora and like say it's complexion, you only get eight shades maybe out of 40. And I know for myself, I have an unusual complexion that my shade is usually not there. And so I can feel texture, but then I need to go in store and actually find my shade. And so for us on e-commerce, the question was like, how do you just, how do you just make it easier for her? We have the benefit of we're a really small line. We don't have a ton of SKUs. Um, and so let's let her, let's let her try everything. So what the program looks like is you can buy, um, a sample of anything on our site, um, and you pay for the sample, but it comes back to you as a site credit. Um, so you could, you could argue it's free, um, <laughs> if you use your site credit, um, and that, that person comes back and, um, she can use your site credit to buy something better. And I think for us, the important thing is that she has the confidence in converting, um, you lower your returns. So there's actually less waste. You know, some people mm. argue one time sampling is wasteful. The amount of returns the beauty industry gets they're also really wasteful. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, we're really trying to, to just help her buy online. So it's a little different than the hero product strategy because it is everything that's available that can be sampled. Yeah. Um, but that one is a little bit more about like, let's get it in her hands and she can opt in. So she's choosing, you know, what she wants to sample versus someone who's um, choosing two random pack packets at um, Sephora checkout. They're, they're a little bit different, but they were both equally important. Yeah, how is that going? I mean, you've talked a little bit about the performance right now, but like, how is that going? What effects have you seen in terms of kind of end results? It's, it, the demand has been incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And what's been interesting is the consumer response of, it's such a simple idea in so many ways, um, but there's been so many TikToks and uh, <laughs> social posts and reviews around like, why hasn't anyone done this before? Um, That's kind of my and, thinking. I'm like, 
I, why aren't people doing this? <laughs> it, it's not, I mean, it, it's honestly like not that big of, it, it, like I'd like to say it's a huge idea. It, it is in that nobody has done it and it takes effort. It, it's not, it's not a small project. <laughs> um, and I think that's what we talked about internally. We're like, well, if no one does this, let's, let's do it. Um, and let's see, you know, and that's, that's the amazing thing about being at a small brand too, is you can kind of swing for the fences. If it doesn't work, you go on. Um, and if it works, you, you, you make it bigger. Um, and so we've, we've seen great, great response, great conversion, um, lower returns. Um, so really everything that we wanted, we have some good feedback. I think, you know, the, the key with sampling now is all the talk about how do you lower waste? Um, and so I think that's, that's what's on our minds of how do you make sure that you're minimizing returns enough that it's a, it's still a great opportunity to share with your friends what you don't use. Um, all those types of things are really important in our, on our minds. Yeah, I kind of love that they have to pay the money too, right? Because just a little bit of commitment to that that adds value to it, right? Versus, oh, I just got this for th free and I'm going to throw it away. Like even though they like buy it and they immediately get the credit to buy something else, there's that just little bit of commitment that makes them more interested in actually using it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Which is super interesting. I'm gonna. I'm very curious to see how this whole thing works out. Um, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, we're not giving away the secrets to everybody. Um, no, no, nothing we haven't said in the press already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit. Kind of the last section I want to hit is in any C level role, or really within any senior management role. Um, you know, recruiting and leadership are two really critical elements of success, right? Like, of course, you know, you're the one, you're the only one coming up with all the great ideas, but everybody else has to execute, right? Um, just kidding. Um, no, I'm saying <laughs> yeah, like, not I'm all. just kidding. <laughs> not at all, no. Um, no, I think that, you know, as the company gets bigger, you become a smaller and smaller percentage of the total company, right? So obviously, and, and so I'd love to start with the recruiting side first, actually, because we had a little bit of conversation about that. And I thought, you know, the way that you approached it was really interesting. So could you talk through what are your recruiting philosophies? Like, what do you, how do you approach recruiting? How do you think about bringing in talent? Um, I'd love to start there, um, if that's, if yeah. that works. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I think that, as you said, recruiting is the most important thing that you can do as a leader. Um, and also the most, it's also the most difficult. Um, and so, you know, I'd say that my philosophies are similar to actually how I described how, what the challenges and thinking are around, um, how to think about growing, growing a brand from small to big in that you really have to start with what do you need today? And, but have a really clear vision of three years from now, where will you need the organization to be to hit the strategy that, that you've set out um, so that you're not hiring, you know, because you could say when you're a small brand, I need, I need 20 coordinators because I just need someone to send out a thousand influencer gifts. Um, but a year, maybe not even a year later, but six months to 12 months later, you might say, oh, oh no, I should have used three of those headcounts to hire a VP of marketing. I'm just making that up. Um, and so I think having that, that approximate roadmap is, is really, really key. Um, and then I think the second piece is really thinking about building that complementary team. When you're really small, every person and their superpower has to complement each other. Um, and you can't sort of afford to have five people with the same superpower. Um, yep. and so I think that's really what I try to look for is the, it's both the, the superpower from a, a person, a work standpoint, but it's also the personal personalities. Um, you don't want five people who all they're thinking about is how do I be the next head of marketing? Um, yep. you also don't want five people who are super shy, introverted, don't want to talk to an influencer, et cetera. Um, and so I think it's that puzzle piecing that makes it so hard, um, but also so, so important. And I'm a piece of that too, in that I'm super aware of my strengths, my opportunities. And so when I, when I look at hiring, I always think about like, who's going to be 
especially my key direct reports, how do we all really act as a, as a great marketing leadership team as the company grows um, so that we all kind of balance each other and, um, you know, create a great environment for the team. So like to your question of if, if I like to operate in the background, like who, who is going to go to the events and rally for, for head of marketing? If, and maybe somebody will want to do that and be better at that than me. Um, and that's, that's fine with me and, and even better. So, um, I think that's, that's where it, it's all, it's all a puzzle, puzzle piece and a lot of referrals. I'm obsessed with referrals. <laughs> I will, I will dig high and low, um, to, to find people, um, that people just have worked with and, and rave about. Cause I, I think I, I'm sort of a believer in that people's regular references are, you can always find a friend to say good things about you. Of course, <laughs> um, so of course. You, you always have to dig like one level deeper. Um, and you know, the beauty industry is small, which is good and bad. So. What is your, so let's talk about that referral concept for a little bit. Like, what are your tactics there? Is it, you know, are you incentivizing them? Are you just constantly hounding them? Like, what's the, what's the actual tactics there? No, you know, I think it's all your, it's all your network and your, and, yeah. and the people that you have genuine relationships with and that you're always sort of um, communicating with each other because um, I've had people I hired that someone introduced me to because they weren't the right fit for their team at the right yep. at the time, maybe too expensive, too senior. Um, and so they've been like, she was amazing. I feel like you might need her, you know, let me, let me introduce you. And I think if you're always doing that in return, um, then we're all, we're all here to support each other. That's actually one of the things I love about the beauty industry so much is I feel like the, the, the leadership network, but at every level is really like ready to offer up advice to each other. Um, no one's worried about like, trade secrets like obviously you're not going to unveil your three-year strategy plan um to your closest competitor um yeah. but people are willing to, to share I, I used this headhunter they were really great um you know I, I i have somebody who i think is strong but is not the right fit for my company anymore and i really genuinely think that she just needs this environment um and i think just having those conversations and and being open yourself is is the key um, and not, you know, poaching people from your friends and, and all those types of things of the like unspoken, I'm sure rules of, of beauty somewhere in there. We, I definitely did that accidentally recently and it wasn't me. It was like somebody within the team anyways, but, um, <laughs> I too have been surprised specifically because we now span categories, right? So we started in beauty, but now we're big in fashion. We're growing really quickly in fitness and you know, it's interesting because the amount of information sharing and general camaraderie within the beauty industry is, is a pretty big contrast, I'd say, to the fashion industry. A big difference in terms of just the general atmosphere. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And I, I also agree on the, you know, the more that you help other people, the more they're going to want to help you, right? And so the more that you can kind of uh, uh, pass it along, the more that it will come back to you generally. So, um so let's talk, you talked about specialization there quite a bit. And, you know, I know you've worked with John Mark now at a couple different companies, which is, you know, I'd imagine he's the one that takes care of the ops and finance and HR and all those kinds of things. <laughs> like that's probably what he's really good at. Um, you know, were there, are there other leaders um, that you have really been inspired by or that you've learned from that you think um, like, oh yeah, I really took that from them. And, you know, that stuck with me over time. Yeah, I have been so lucky um, with the people I've had the opportunity to work with. John Mark is incredible because he has this really unusual combination of the big corporate knowledge. So all the things that you need to know, you know, to, to, to scale, um, but has a real love of building brands and getting in there when they're young. Um, he did it at Fresh in the early days, and then he certainly came into Touch and has done it at Kosas, and, and he, he has so much passion for it. Um, and then he also is a great sort of side-by-side -side with the founder, partner, CEO that, that I think can, can kind of merge with anyone. And I think that's a really, and he's obsessed with people, and he has this incredible intuition for people. And so I think what I've learned from him is that question you asked earlier on, on how do you scale but you can scale at the expense 
of a lot of things that brought the brand to where it was. Because going from zero to 10 is not a small thing. There's a lot of brands that never, never get there either. And so I think what I've really learned watching him and learning from him has been how to think about scaling at the right pace while preserving what made the brand special in the first place. And that's the founder, the people, the products, um, the te- you know, and so much of it is the team and the culture. Um, and then, of course, the, the brand DNA. And so I've, I, that's been really, really valuable um, from him as a CEO. Other people that have really, I'd say, impacted me are Julie Bornstein, who was the chief marketing and digital officer at Sephora. So I was the the VP of dot-com merchandising under her. Um, And she really made me fall in love with e-commerce. I know that makes me sound like such a nerd, but like I said, I'm an introvert. (laughs) Um, But I, her love for innovation um, but not innovation for innovation's sake, innovation that is driven out of a customer need, um, being obsessed with the customer experience and using digital to enable that customer experience. Um, I mean, she has gone on, she, she, she drove Sephora.com to, to what it is today and, um, you know, went on to do it again at Stitch Fix and, and now her own startup. Um, but that spirit of what's possible in digital, I'd say has really has really carried me, motivated motivated me, continued to inspire me, and that's something like Costa's tryouts. It's like, well, why hasn't some why hasn't someone done this? Like, let's do it. Um, that that spirit <laughs> that spirit is totally what Julie would have done. You know, I, I could actually channel her in conference rooms, being like, well, if you guys think that's a good idea, why don't why, let's let's just like go do it. What do you need? You know, and so um, and that was at a Sephora where you're a much bigger machine, and it, it does it takes more. Um, and of course, with thoughtfulness and with all the numbers and the analytics and all of that behind her. Um, but but she she's incredible. Um, and then I had two CMOs that um, at Sephora also, Sharon Rothstein um, and uh, Deborah Ye, who's still the CMO at Sephora. Um, I'd say both of them are these incredible brand builders and really taught me the power of storytelling. Um, to touch a consumer and the need for foundational brand positioning, strategy, frameworks, no matter how small your company is, um, how to build those, how to think about those um, and and use those to inspire kind of what drives your vision forward. Um, You know, I, I think I've had this I've really been lucky to have these people who are incredible brand builder storytellers, like the digital side, the the John Mark sort of CEO, big big picture scale hat, um, and that combination. Like I, I'm just I'm so grateful for because they're all incredible people too, um, and you know that that was just that was luck to some extent. So um, I'm, I'm grateful for all of them, and, and all are still still very active in my life. In fact, Sharon is actually. Um, at Stripes, which is the investor behind um, Kosis, so oh, cool! It all it all comes around, and uh, your people are always still, always still in your network. Beauty industry very small, <laughs> for sure. It's interesting. I don't, as you were talking about it, for some reason, the connection that I made was. You know, you hear these uh, like coaching lineages, right? So you'll see that in sports, like, oh, you know, they were tutored under such and such head coach or tutored under. I think you've had a you've had a really good coaching lineage. It sounds like you've had some pretty, pretty big big powerhouses there, Um, both at a brand overall brand level and just at a, you know, individual level. Um, well, it wouldn't be, uh, my team would kill me if I didn't talk to you about influencer marketing. So, um, let's do that. And then we'll do one kind of fun end of show question. So the two brands that you've been at have been amongst the, if not the best performing brands that we track. I mean, Tatcha was the number one brand, not when you started, but when you left, um, in, uh, in EMV from a just pure influencer coverage perspective. And then Kosis is growing incredibly fast. Um, you know, I think over hundred percent year over year, multiple years in a row, um, particularly since you've, you've come around. So what's the secret sauce? What are you doing that nobody else is doing? Cause I think, uh, the people want to know. 
you know, I that I think might be trade secrets. Um, but <laughs> we're using we're using tribe. Is that what that's the key? That was not the purpose um, of the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, here's what I would say, um, and I think actually this goes a little bit to why I do think that um, the beauty industry people share secrets to some extent is I think to you can share strategies. But so much of it is in the way what's authentic to your brand and how do you build it and how does your founder interact with people um, that at the end of the day, like you can't actually copy each other very easily, um, even if you kind of wrote the playbook for someone. So I, I think that's what's interesting about beauty. And so I think on the influencer front, um, it, it's kind of like how we were just talking about recruiting um, in in that it, it's all about people. It's, it's building your, your tribe, which I'm guessing is, is how you guys named the company. <laughs> um, it's, it, and because so much of it is finding who, who authentically loves you. That, that's what we're obsessed with. Um, so getting product into as many people's hands as possible to discover who is it that loves you, um, who shares your values. It's really important to us, too, that what we stand for is in line with what they believe in. Um, and nurturing those relationships so that it's it's a two-way street you're not a brand that's always like hey i have this thing that i want to pay you for but it's instead about hey what do you what do you want to what do you want to do like how can we help you and and where do we where do our goals match um and and having that be your team you know they're they're just like an extension of your company um and it's all about relationships um that's that's the number one thing. I, I think that you could write a million strategy playbooks, um, but if you don't fundamentally have people who understand you, understand your products and what they do, they might get, you might get those like one hit things that yep, spikes yep. your EMV for a month. It's a hero product. They love it. It's a good product. Um, but I think that long term of, you know, the, the Tatcha staying at number one EMV for, for years, um, that comes from real love um, and loyalty yep. and retention. And I, I think that's um, that's really the it's not a not a secret sauce. It's a <laughs> um, but it's an approach. And, you know, we're we're small. So, you know, Tatcha never paid anyone. You know, yeah. everything is organic. Um, and I do believe that there is a role for they're, they're influencers and it's their job. So I absolutely believe that, that they need to be paid. Um, but I do think that it's a mix um, and it starts with the organic relationship before it moves into anything else. And so that is a piece we use tribe um, religiously. Um, and but it's really it's art. It's art and science um, and and relationships. That's number one word. <laughs> Which I know you you talk about a lot too, as it as it retain like about retention and your community metrics. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's funny because it's it's kind of so straightforward, but at the same time so misunderstood and misapproached. Um, you know, people tend to approach it like a media buying exercise, like, oh, you're a magazine, I come. I, what's your demographics? Let me pay you to talk about me, and it's just just not what it is. Um, and it tends to kind of the way that you treat those people that are showing you that organic love has a really big impact on everybody else, right? Because then everybody else goes, oh, wow, you know, look at how Kosas is treating the people that love them, right? And versus, uh, versus, you know, yeah, they went and paid the Kardashians to talk about them, right? Like, it's just, yeah. it's a totally, it, the, the, the positive and negative externalities there are just totally misunderstood. Um, Okay, so let's get to one fun end of show question. Um, this one's a little bit less fun, a little bit more introspective. But uh, so as a shy and introverted person who's gotten into a role that is, you know, uh, really senior where a lot of people would want to get to, what would be your advice to other shy and introverted uh, youngsters who are just starting in their careers that want to get into your role, but go, Hey, you know, I can't, I'm never going to be Corey, right? Like I'm not going to be the one that's out in the press all the time. And that's just not going to be what I, my special superpower is going to be. What would be your advice to them? You know, I have always thought about career. Like I, I never sat at Sephora and said, I'm trying to be a CMO necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think what is most important is really knowing what brings you joy. 
um, and what your, your superpowers are. There's actually an exercise that I think I learned at Sephora through leadership training that is actually, it's a superpower card deck that I love to do with teams, um, where you sort of flip over and you say like, what, what, what is your number one strength? And it has like your secondary strength. Um, and starting to say like, what, what am I best at? And where do I think that's going to take me? And then in the areas where maybe don't naturally come to you, like, where do I need to learn those skills? And then for the things that you think you're never, they're just not comfortable for you. You know, they're, you're never going to be that. Like, don't don't force it. Like you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. like, accept that if you're not ever going to be ahead of human resources, then don't don't do that. <laughs> don't don't yeah. try to do that. You, and you don't have to be that. Um, yep. And, you know, and so that said, you know, the way I always thought about my career path is I did three different teams at Sephora. Um, I didn't plan on staying in retail marketing for as long as I did. Um, I loved Sephora as a company, but I always looked around me and said, what job am I really interested in learning? Um, and it wasn't necessarily about what's going to get me to where I want to be. It was just what what do I want to try? And so um, there was a moment for me where I, I didn't love retail marketing because it didn't have a P&L ownership. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved the sort of Sephora innovation side of it, but I, I, missed, I missed these other pieces. But I looked at the merchant job and said, I'm not a merchant. Like, that's just not me. And um, Julie actually said to me, like, why not try dot-com merchandising? It's sort of a blend of e-com marketing, merchandising. It became an open role. And... Um, kind of just took a took a leap um, and I never would have discovered e-commerce had I not done that that move but it wasn't with the intent of I want to be ahead of digital someday it was with the intent of digital's really interesting it's exploding this is a really great leader that I want to work with um, and it's also an opportunity so seize it so I think it's all about learning, knowing yourself, figuring out what's around you, being really curious. I think curiosity is everything. I think if you, if you seek out what you're curious about, what you want to learn, what makes you happy, you're going to find the, the ultimate path that you want. Um, because I think if you had asked me six years ago, what do you want to do? I don't think I would have said, I want to be a CMO at a small brand. Um, and make it bigger. And now that's probably all I would ever tell anyone is, oh, I want to be a small brand and make it bigger. And so I don't, but maybe that'll be different in five years. Like I don't, I actually don't know. Um, so that's why, you know, even on like a CMO CEO question, it's like, I don't know. I like sort of look at John Mark and say, would I be good at what he's doing? I don't know. Um, and so that's, but I'd want to learn from him. And so I do spend as much time as possible asking questions. And so I think, I think curiosity would be my my number one piece of advice, which is probably different than what other people might give. No, I love it. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time. I know I learned a lot today and uh, I think other people will too. And uh, thanks for stepping out of your your shy bubble and coming out to the world. Um, uh, This is your first podcast and I'm pumped to get it it out there. So uh, yeah. And uh, congrats on all your achievements. It's super, super impressive. Like I started out the show with it's uh, congrats. It's not, not common to get where you've gotten. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye Adeline. Bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.